From the New York offices of Oxford University Press, this is the Oxford Comment, a monthly podcast featuring insights from Oxford University Press authors, editors, and more. My name is Sarah, multimedia producer and your host for this episode. What are your feelings on sports? Maybe you're a diehard fan. Maybe you're running around the field right now. Or maybe you're like me, who got hit in the head twice in one junior league softball game and immediately decided it would be better to remain an occasional spectator. Now that we're further into fall, sports has become an unavoidable topic of conversation. Baseball coming to an exciting end, American football heating up, basketball just starting. Sports also tend to become a hot topic in the wake of a scandal, but I learned recently that there's a lot more underneath the surface of these transgressions gender and national identity, neuroscience, cultural beliefs. I talked to some experts to figure out how this all fits together. First on deck is Chuck Fountain, author of a book called The Betrayal, the 1919 World Series and the Birth of Modern Baseball. I called him up and my first question was an obvious one. What happened in the 1919 World Series? We'll never know what happened in the 1919 World Series. What has come down through the years and what is at the core of our fascination with the 1919 World Series is that eight members of the Chicago White Sox discussed throwing the series to the Cincinnati Reds, that seven of them entered into a conspiracy with a group or a couple of different groups of gamblers to do that in exchange for the promise of somewhere between ten and $50,000 a man. After that, we don't know what happened, that it gets so convoluted, so complicated, so fraught with conflicting stories that we don't know whether or not the uh, White Sox lost. They did lose the series. We don't know whether the White Sox lost because they were trying to lose or whether they lost because uh, they couldn't play up to their abilities or whether they lost because Cincinnati was just the best on those eight days. But it's a story that has fascinated us ever since, and it's got a thousand other different pieces to it that uh, make it historically significant almost nine decades later, more than nine decades later. So who, who called them out on it? There had been rumors throughout the series. There always were. Uh, because there were always rumors, some people discounted these. These were more persistent. Charles Comiskey, the owner of the White Sox, was told by his manager about halfway through the series that uh, his manager believed seven of his players were compromised and were not performing their best. By the time the series was over, Comiskey pretty much believed it was true. He hired private investigators to follow the players during the offseason to see if uh, he could learn anything more, not so much to find out whether or not they were guilty so he might dismiss them from his team, but to determine whether or not there was proof out there that was going to come out, and if he had them on his team, it would come to embarrass him. The private investigators determined that, uh, well, we can probably keep a lid on this, and Charles Comiskey signed these players for the 1920 season, and at the end of the 1920 season, they were a game or two out of uh, first place. When a whole series of unrelated events finally blew the lid off 1919, the first of these was a phone call to the president of the Chicago Cubs telling him that a late-season game between the Cubs and the Phillies was going to be fixed and he should watch it. 
He watched it. He changed the starting pitcher. He went to the grand jury and said, would you please look into this? When the grand jury started looking into those allegations on the Cubs-Phillies game, it decided, well, we may as well look into all these rumors that are still around about 1919. While the grand jury was investigating this and hearing early, you know, very non-conclusive evidence from some early witnesses, one of the would-be fixers from 1919 wrote a, mega, wrote a newspaper article and was interviewed by a newspaper writer in Philadelphia, came to a Philadelphia newspaper and said, I've got the whole story. That story in a Philadelphia newspaper was really the, uh, the linchpin for the whole cover-up coming undone. The day after that story appeared, Charles Comiskey brought three players, Joe Jackson, Eddie Seacott, Lefty Williams, in front of the grand jury and coerced their confessions out of them. You could not charge the players with throwing a baseball game because that was not illegal. There were no laws against uh, throwing a baseball game or prearranging the result of a baseball game. So instead, these guys were indicted on a real arcane array of charges. The most understandable of them was conspiring to injure the business of their employer, Charles Comiskey. It would have never come to trial were it not for Ban Johnson, who hated Charles Comiskey and wanted to see Charles Comiskey ruined. So Ban Johnson threw the full resources of the American League into locating two people that would be willing to testify. The jury were baseball fans, and the jury acquitted the players on all charges in deliberation that lasted no more than an hour and a half. This is now the summer of 1921. The players were carried from the courtroom on the shoulders of the fans that were there to hear the verdict. Wow. Uh, the jurors went out with the players to celebrate at a restaurant around the corner after that. And everybody thought that the case was over, and the players certainly thought that they would be resuming their baseball careers the next day. Judge Landis, the new commissioner of the game, brought in during this whole period uh, issued an edict the next day that began, regardless of the verdicts of juries, no player who conspires to throw a baseball game or any player who uh, sits in conference with players who conspire to throw a game and does not report it will ever play baseball again. The jury proceedings also resulted in significant changes to the sport, which Chuck outlined for me. It brought a commissioner into the game. It uh, brought... A, an office, and it gave the base. It gave baseball a strong commissioner. It took the operation of the game out of the hands of the uh, 16 owners, who all had sort of different interests and different levels of financial wherewithal to fall back on. 16 people looking out for their own individual interests are never going to be an effective way of operating a single business, a single entity, as you know, Major League Baseball was. It was 16 separate businesses, but it sort of comprised this single entity to the public. But it was an effective beginning of a modern governance of the game. And make no mistake about it that all of this was helped because by the fact that at the same time the Black Sox were being thrown out of the game, Babe Ruth was becoming Babe Ruth. 1921, the season the Black Sox were thrown out, was the season that Babe Ruth was hitting 59 home runs and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, changing the game forever. I was curious to find out what Americans in 1919 thought of all this. Baseball is so integral to the American identity, I asked Chuck for his thoughts on the far-reaching effects of the Black Sox scandal. This was a culmination of a culture of gambling and game fixing that had been a part of the game really since the game's beginning. And 
the National Commission, the governing body before the commissioner, had done nothing to eradicate this, that there were rumors, there were charges, there were allegations brought by some managers against some players through the years. But the National Commission always found a way to sweep these under the table because while rumors were bad for the game, the only thing that was going to be worse than rumors was proof that those rumors were true. So the National Commission, the owners of the game, didn't want this story to come out. And it didn't. So when uh, the Black Sox scandal happened, the public saw it as this aberration. And when the Black Sox players were banned, they saw that that aberration had been swiftly and surely dealt with, and they could go on with celebrating the game as they always had. Baseball was always America's game. Mm-hmm. And uh, that you're tarnishing baseball, you're in some way tarnishing America. That uh, you know, it, what I don't think it was a uh, a really strong reach to to think that fans saw this scandal as sort of shaking more than just the foundations of baseball, but uh, shaking really the foundations of American culture. This made me wonder if today's baseball scandals have an echo of the Black Sox scandal, if similar issues have been raised in modern day baseball. Chuck brought up a very interesting comparison. Uh, I saw echoes of this scandal in today's newspaper. There is a story today that there is a gambling scandal in Japanese baseball, that uh, a couple of Japanese players have been suspended not for throwing games, but for betting on games, which is illegal. That One thing the Black Sox scandal did was uh, make it illegal for a baseball player to bet on a baseball game, and that sign has been in Major League Clubhouses ever since the 1919 uh, scandal. The other sort of piece of this that you see in today's game is the steroid scandal. Obviously, steroids and gambling have nothing to do with one another, but they both have to do with money. That At the bottom of this, the players uh, in the 1919 World Series accepted this money because they were very poorly paid. And this was, in some cases, a significant uh, piece of money for them, that Eddie Seacott made $6,000 to pitch you know, over 140 games season, and he made $10,000 from the gamblers throwing the uh, series. So it was an awful lot of money, in some cases twice the uh, annual salary of these guys. So they fell prey to this temptation. Players are obviously extraordinarily well paid today, but because they are, they want to continue to be extraordinarily well paid. They want that 10 or $15 million salary to continue for another year, another two years, another five years. So they're tempted to cheat by using performance-enhancing drugs, just as almost a century ago ball players were tempted to cheat uh, by gambling or doing whatever they could, all of it to put a little extra money, or in today's case, a lot of extra money in their pockets. Everything is writ large today, of course, and so you had congressional hearings on steroids, and that too is the legacy of the uh, the Black Sox. That sports sports issues were sports uh, issues back then. Uh, the Black Sox made a sports issue a um, an American cultural issue, and now sports issues are American cultural issues. Next in the lineup is Julie Desjardins, the author of a book called. Walter Camp. I'll be honest, I hadn't heard of Walter Camp before seeing Julie's book. It turns out Walter Camp pretty much made American football what it is today. Uh, Well, Walter Camp was what I refer to as the father of American football. 
And that sounds like a very ambitious statement to make, but I have to tell you that if you were to actually read any newspaper from the turn of the 20th century, that would be the moniker that they used. I mean, just like you would say, you know, President Obama, you would say father of American football, Walter Camp. And um, he really from about the 1880s, 1890s, all the way until he died in 1925, was probably the most instrumental figure in shaping American football. Not just the rules of American football, but also, you know, the popular idea of the football player and the way that football has really gotten into the American consciousness. He actually played when he was at Yale as an undergraduate in 1876. And football was already a sport. You know, people played it in variation, all sorts of different variations of it. Some look, I guess, like what you would think of as soccer. Some of it looked like English rugby. And so he is there at the ground floor when something called the Intercollegiate Football Association comes into being. And he helps create some of the rules that make it look less and less like British rugby and more and more like, you know, its own American game. And then he becomes sort of a propagator. He's one of the first journalists to write about it, you know, on the sports page. And then he starts writing all of these football novels. And everybody knows him as like the first quintessential expert in the game. He created or he sort of tinkered with it in ways that he would tell you was to make the game more manly and more American. So the big innovations that he brought very early on was that, you know, he saw the rugby scrum in English rugby where all of the bodies are sort of, you know, they look very disorganized and they're all in one big heap. He decided to create a line of scrimmage. So you had this very clear delineation of offense and defense. The other thing he did was he created what we now know as the quarterback. Um, And he did all this with through all of these various rule changes and structural changes in the game. Um, So he creates this field general, and then as he starts to see the need for it, he starts to create what we now know is the system of downs, meaning that, you know, you have so many attempts to try to make so many yards down the field. And initially, it was only five yards you had to make. So you had, you had, you know, five yards to make in three tries, and then that becomes 10 yards and four tries. So things get tweaked along the way. But those things are really, you know, the keys to the structure of American football. And he would tell you that the reason why he had to make those innovations was because he was trying to give football this shot of virility that he thought the game needed or required so that the people playing it could be made manly. And so he thought that this was one of several ways to create sort of a simulated battlefield in which physical courage got cultivated. There was a direction and purpose to the way Camp set up American football rules. Julie explained how Camp's work reflected his thoughts on what it means to be an American man. There's many facets of this, but one of the things he would tell you is that he made the game more organized and scientific And that that's definitely quintessentially like the American man who is most effective is somebody that's very rational, but also um, somebody who is very sensitive to time and is made more efficient in, in limited amounts of time. So, for example, you know, in English rugby, 
it keeps going. And the same with soccer too, right? The, the clock keeps going no matter what goes on. But with football, to many people's irritation, right, it goes stop, start, stop, start. And he would say that actually what this is is training for American men who are playing it to learn to maximize their efficiency which in these sort of spurts, in these limited amounts of time. And that, that was a distinctly modern trait, an effective trait to have. You also learn a lot about winning. Obviously, people wanted to win when they played rugby. But it wasn't so much the outcome is how you played the game. It was a gentleman's sport. And so the, the point of playing English rugby was to sort of be seen playing rugby and having the leisure and recreation to be able to play rugby and also to have the manners of a gentleman when you played rugby. Walter Camp would say, oh, the football player is a gentleman, but he's a distinctively American gentleman. And American gentlemen are about winning. They're about the bottom line when all is said and done, which sometimes means not winning prettily. You know, it means being effective and getting the job done and, you know, looking at the bottom line, which is what's the score at the end of the game. No doubt that little residues of the kind of masculinity that you see getting constructed in Walter Camp's mind and propagated, you know, in the American imagination through football back at the turn of the 20th century, those residues still exist. And I'm telling you that as I'm describing this new modern football player in, you know, 1900, 1910, there's many facets of him that feel modern. Like this feels like a very current story because the whole sort of idea that, you know, you're, you're an effective man if you can shirk off pain, this, this pain principle where, like, if you are injured, you don't let anyone see those physical injuries, and you certainly don't wear them on your face, and you don't give people indications of this. And in 1910, there's yet another crisis in football. There's dozens of boys that are being killed playing it, so they have to come up with a whole new set of rules to make it more safe. And one of the things that Walter Camp and a couple people, to, you know, other than him, but he's the one, main propagator of this. He decides that it is the natural tendency of a red-blooded American male not to leave a game that he's injured in, right? Because, of course, he's got physical courage and he would never do that. And so what he does to mitigate the damage is he says, we will now put the onus on the trainers and the medical professionals to decide, you know, when the player's going to have to be taken off the field. We will not leave that decision in the hands of the boys themselves, and hence their manhood is left intact. They don't have to surrender. Right. And it's crazy that that's the conversation that they were having, but that's the conversation they were having. You would never tell a red-blooded American male to take himself out of a game. I can't just blame him for having that mentality because, frankly, Teddy Roosevelt had that mentality. You know, this is why he had his boys play football. Teddy Roosevelt lectured Harvard men about not playing ruggedly enough. He's like, come on, you know, who, nothing's going to hurt you. If you break a few bones, whatever, that's called the path to manhood. Get over it, you know. And that was the mentality that he and his generation had because they were, to be honest, concerned that their generation was becoming emasculated. And one of the reasons they were worried about this was because this generation, you know, the generation that Roosevelt grew up in and Walter Camp grew up in, they had not really fought in a war. And there was this assumption that, you know, you really needed to, you had to fight in a war to really sort of get your chops. 
And these boys never had the hardening lessons of war. And the other thing, too, is that they were being a little bit emasculated now that more women and men of color and the lower classes were starting to have more political and economic power in American life. And so they felt emasculated, consciously or not. And so in some ways they feel like they need to find ways to prove their manhood and be hardened again. And for Walter Camp, creating this simulated battlefield on a football gridiron was the answer. And so in some ways, that mentality still sticks. I mean, now we have all of these protocols for concussion um, that we did not have, say, five and six years ago even. But even so, there are boys who are probably concussed who don't want to admit that they're concussed. Maybe we have to think even more fundamentally than that and think Mm -hmm. about what our expectations are of boys out on the field and how we expect them to show their manhood. I was really surprised by this because there are still numerous ongoing controversies about brain injury in American football today. I turned to Dr. Monroe Cullum, board-certified clinical neuropsychologist, professor of psychiatry and neurology at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, neuropsychology consultant to the Dallas Cowboys and Dallas Stars, and past president of the National Academy of Neuropsychology and the Society for Clinical Neuropsychology. I figured he could explain the science of concussions and brain injuries that can and do occur in American football. Our contacts at Archives of Clinical Neuropsychology put me in touch with him, and I called him up to ask him, what happens to our brains during a concussion? Well, in, in a concussion, the, the brain gets knocked around within the skull, basically. So it's, it's bumping around and, and uh, stretching itself and being stretched. Uh, and the, the brain, the living brain, is very much like kind of thick jello. Uh, so when it's stretched uh, too much, you can actually uh, injure some of the connective tissue, the, the axons or the white matter in the brain, and they can become uh, either uh, abnormal physiologically or they can actually uh, be damaged or physically torn as well, which uh, may disrupt uh, normal brain function. The symptoms of concussion vary, uh, vary from one individual to another quite widely, as does recovery uh, vary quite widely across individuals. There are some symptoms that tend to be uh, pretty common uh, across concussions, like headache, uh, sometimes nausea, light sensitivity, um, noise sensitivity, uh, things like that, a little bit of confusion, maybe some memory loss, or maybe uh, some slight mood changes and irritability and things like that. So if, if you look at you know the majority of cases of concussion, you know headache is is present in uh, you know a large majority of cases, but not all. We don't understand yet why a similar injury in two different individuals results in different symptoms and different recovery patterns. So for example, one individual sustaining a concussion may be totally fine, totally back to normal the next day, uh, and the next person with the same injury uh, is still having symptoms even a couple months later and that's really what we don't understand fully yet and so how, how are brain injuries uh, assessed typically it's done through a clinical examination uh, based on the symptom uh, reports of the patient and the observations of the clinician doing the exam the the symptoms of concussion fall into uh, 
physical symptoms, uh, cognitive symptoms, and mood symptoms. So it's really a multidimensional assessment that, that, that needs to occur. Um, and not all uh, physicians and healthcare professionals are, are, are trained with that in mind. So uh, seeing a specialist who really does a lot of work in the uh, traumatic brain injury concussion area uh, is, is really important. Uh, and right now, you know, a big treatment for concussion is rest. Uh, however, too much rest we have uh, learned may be bad for uh, bad for people actually. So, if you pull a young athlete uh, out of uh, circulation, out of their social activities, out of school, uh, if you take them, you know, away from their uh, their typical routine, their friends and whatnot, uh, you may actually uh, your students may develop some symptoms as a result of that. Uh, so they, they may become irritable, they may become depressed and anxious. But it may not be necessarily related to their concussion. It may be related to the uh, the fact that their schedule has just been turned upside down and disrupted. So we need to learn how much rest is good and for whom. Um, and it, the recent literature suggests that uh, getting people back to a, their regular routine a, as soon as possible uh, after a little bit of rest uh, is, is a good idea. With concussion, uh, there tends to be some amount of brain swelling. So if the brain sustains another concussion, uh, you know, within a certain amount of time, uh, close to the first concussion, there can be uh, more extensive brain swelling, and that's really one of the uh, the risks uh, of the, the so-called uh, second impact syndrome, uh, which many feel is a result of uh, this the brain swelling phenomenon, because uh, when the brain swells, it it's, it sits within the skull, so it doesn't really have anywhere to go. Uh, so that you know, swelling of the brain can be can rapidly become a very very serious uh, concern. Dr. Cullum is doing a lot of interesting research with Dr. John Hart, a cognitive neurologist and professor of neurology, specifically on later life effects of traumatic brain injury. I asked Dr. Cullum about his involvement in professional sports and the current state of research on brain injury. My involvement uh, has been with uh, NHL and NFL teams as well as some local college and uh, high school teams as well. NHL and NFL have been the leaders in this area. These programs consist of uh, doing a baseline assessment, so prior to injury, prior to beginning of season, if you will, uh, doing a, an assessment of their uh, routine balance, uh, their uh, cognitive function, using at least a, a, a screening neuropsychological test battery. Uh, often a computerized test battery, um, and then that way, so if there's an in, if there's a concussion, we can compare their functioning after injury not, not only to uh, other individuals of similar uh, demographic factors, same age, education, etc., uh, from the test results, but we can compare them with how they were prior to injury. Uh, we have looked at some of the. Uh, data suggesting that you know the more mature brain does recover more quickly than the, the child brain, so there is something to be said for you know making sure we're protecting young athletes and, and individuals from concussion as much as possible, because uh, it takes longer for them to recover than, for example, somebody who's a professional uh, or you know, elite athlete who's you know over the age of uh, 18. There's still more work to be done in terms of. Uh, this variability we see across individuals. So, you know, we're learning that there may be uh, a variety of yet unknown factors that help determine uh, who gets problems and uh, maintains problems longer over time. 
some of these factors may be genetic. So there's a lot of interest in the traumatic brain injury world now in trying to identify uh, uh, biomarkers, uh, blood-based biomarkers, blood tests, et cetera, that, that may help uh, identify individuals who may be at increased risk for the effects of, uh, of concussion also. There's a lot of interest now in you know what happens later in life uh, if you've had a series of concussions when you're younger, uh, and that also uh, is is not uh, terribly well understood. We've we've done some uh, initial studies in uh, former uh, professional athletes with histories of concussion, and we do find that uh, if you've had a concussion with loss of consciousness uh, earlier in life, uh, you you seem to be at a bit greater risk for developing uh, some sort of cognitive symptoms later in life. But again, we can't predict at the individual level, and so we don't really know right now who is at risk for what type of symptoms or abnormalities later. There are other parallels between American football in the early 20th century and today, besides safety. Take Deflategate as an example. Julie pointed out some really interesting parallels there. I, I don't know, are you familiar with what Deflategate was, like what the controversy was. I am, I have like a passing knowledge, but if you could explain it. <laughs> because in some ways it doesn't even look related, but I'll tell you. So, so back um, during the playoffs, the football playoffs in the NFL last year, the Patriots beat the Colts by a ton, but the Colts got in touch with the league officials and said that they suspected that uh, Tom Brady, who's the quarterback of the Patriots, that he was playing with underinflated footballs. Okay, according to NFL rules, the footballs needed to be between 12.5 and 13.5 psi. Okay, you know pounds per square inch. So they needed to be pretty, you know, inflated, and they were less than that. They claimed. What's interesting about this? You might think like. How is this related to Walter Camp? I mean, God knows they were lucky if they even had a ball that was the right shape, let alone, you know, inflated to the right PSI. This wasn't even a conversation that Walter Camp had. But these rules show you just how technical American football has gotten. And this sort of ratcheted up technicalness of the game is something very much started by Walter Camp. American football changed every year. The rule book always had to be changed. That's why he was always printing a new one every single year. And it gets more and more and more technical as American coaches and players found ways around the rules. What Walter Camp would say is, see, perfect example of American innovation at its best. This is proof that American you know, footballers are the most innovative minds, and they're always changing with the times. And this is why the game will never get irrelevant. The game will always meet cultural needs. I don't know that Camp would have seen this as cheating. I think Camp would have said, you know what? You do as much as the rules allow you to do. That's what an effective man of the modern age does. He innovates within the rules and finds ways to subvert them when he can. Yeah, I, that just made me think of like the the way that that mentality of, you know, being innovative and doing what it takes to win is so seeped into our culture that it's, it's everywhere. Uh, I mean, it's, it's in business transactions. It's you yeah. got, and you know what? It's funny you mentioned that because what Walter Camp was always telling people is that football, college football was the perfect sort of breeding ground for the next corporate magnate. You know, he would say, he, he actually talked about them interchangeably. You know, being a good corporate man and being a good football player took the same kinds of skills. 
Let's widen our scope a little, outside the U.S. Paul Rouse is the author of Sport and Ireland, and I was curious to hear about Ireland's relationship with sport. If you look around the modern Irish sporting world, you can see aspects of that sporting world that are absolutely unique to Ireland. You see, for example, the games of the Gaelic Athletic Association, games of hurling and of Gaelic football, two, two of the biggest field games in the country, which are unique to Ireland and to Irish communities who brought the games with them around the world. But as well as that unique aspect of Irish sport, there is also a shared history of play with countries everywhere. So, for example, you see horse racing, so is boxing and soccer uh, and rugby. So all the great field games of the world are played in Ireland, as well as these unique aspects of, of, of Irish sport. The interesting thing about Ireland in the 20th century was the manner in which its sports were sundered because of partition. Ireland, the island of Ireland, was divided in a political settlement in the 1920s between what became the Republic of Ireland, that was 26 of the 32 counties to the south, and what became Northern Ireland and remained part of the United Kingdom, so the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, the manner in which that partition affected sporting organisations was vital because, of course, before then, there was one Ireland soccer team and there was one Ireland rugby team. Sport was essentially organised on an all-island basis. But what do you do when the boundaries of your sporting organisation are not contiguous with the boundaries of the state? And this presented huge numbers of problems for people. But it also presented possibilities because people in these both these new states began to wrap their sports in the flags of these new states and fought for the allegiance of it. It is true that some sporting organizations tried to straddle the divide and managed it to a greater or lesser extent with huge compromise on everyone's behalf. But not always was it managed and the residue of that conflict, conflict can be seen everywhere. For example, there is an All-Ireland rugby team but there is not an All-Ireland soccer team. There is a soccer team of Northern Ireland and a soccer team of the Republic of Ireland. The Gaelic Athletic Association can be found in every corner of the island, provided that corner is related to nationalism or Catholicism. It is not an organisation which is given very often to Unionists or Protestants. So this is a tangled sporting story where politics and identity does play into the organisation of sport in the ways that doesn't happen in other countries. That seems to tie back to the idea that sports scandals highlight the construction of national identity. Paul also wrote a chapter about gender and sport in Ireland, so I brought it up in our conversation. And he used a phrase, cult of masculinity, which sounds similar to what I discussed with Julie. The creation of modern sport, that is sport as imagined after 1850, was a profoundly male experience. You look at the imagery around it, this was a cult of masculinity. Insofar as women were perceived by most men to be involved in sport, it was a perception which revolved around women watching games or presenting medals afterwards or making sandwiches for the players or washing jerseys. That's how women were perceived to be the players. And it, only very, very slowly did women push themselves onto the, onto the playing field. Even now, the residue of, of that uh, time is felt by the place of women in the sporting world, where women receive far fewer attendance, far fewer people attending uh, women's sporting events, far less money being uh, awarded for prize money at most, if not all, women's sporting uh, um, tournaments. There is so much more that can be explored in relation to sports scandals. 
I feel like I've barely scratched the surface here, but what I did learn is that behind every sports scandal is a web of cultural perspectives and economics and history and science. I want to end with something Paul said during our conversation. People get caught up with ideas of identity and, and politics and, and commerce and, and, that, and all of those matter in shaping modern sport. But at the core of understanding the sports that people play is the very idea of play itself. In that, what happens is sport begins to reflect and always reflects the society in which it's played. So, for example, you look at sport now and you see how sport nowadays is shaped by modern forms of communication. How, for example, satellite television companies and pay-per-view television companies have reshaped sport over the last 10 or 20 years. Previous to that, you look at how the railways and the connectivity between cities and country areas shaped how people play sport. And before that, again, you look at how sport grew as towns and cities began to grow and you had the de development and building of dedicated sport facilities almost always within towns. So you now have a situation from the 1700s and 1800s onwards of more and more money flowing into the world of sport and of course this changed how people played sport. A stadium-sized thank you to Chuck, Julie, Dr. Cullum and Paul for taking the time to talk with me. You can find more info about their books on the OUP website. And thank you for listening. You can find more episodes of the Oxford Comment on SoundCloud, iTunes, and as always, on the OUP blog. And that's the sound of the final buzzer. Until next time, friends. <laughs>